0: Our reward system in our brain has been completely demolished and deranged by eating hyperpalatable food. Prostaglandin E2 not only is the central initiator of inflammation, it is also the central initiator of the resolution of inflammation. First lesson there is that omega-6s aren't intrinsically inflammatory and that you know if you could avoid it, you, NSAIDs don't make sense. Blocking the enzyme that creates the inflammation causes chronic low-grade inflammation.
1: Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do it. Welcome back to the
2: Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, today's episode is one of those episodes where I got to interview somebody that I have been following for years, 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 years. I have been following the work of Chris Masterjohn for honestly as long as I can remember being in this whole paleo, holistic health, nutrition world. So, of course, when I heard him on Rob Wolf's podcast, I was like, oh my goodness. I have got to ask Rob if he'll connect me and he was so kind to do so. So this was really a surreal moment. I'm really excited to bring this to you guys. I am just so grateful for the work that he is doing. And on top of that, he was so generous with his time. I wasn't sure where we were going to end up going with the conversation because honestly, there is so many things we could have talked about, but I really like the direction that it did end up going. We got really deep into a topic that I think is really important that a lot of people aren't talking about or aren't really even aware of. And that's what the dietary recommendations actually mean. What do we need with vitamins and supplementations and nutrition? What is nutrition? We also went down many tangents and rabbit holes, so I really think you guys will enjoy today's episode. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash chrismasterjohn. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, intermittent fasting plus real foods plus life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram. Find the Friday announcement post there. And again, enter to win something that I love. Not many people take me up on that. Definitely enter. You can win multiple times. People do. And what do you win? But usually full-size beauty products. More on that in a bit. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877 861 8318. That's Avalon X to 877 861 8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MDLogic Health. For that, go to melanieavaloncom MDLogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys, if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts, and friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon, so you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin. So you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum. They have shampoo and conditioner skincare lines for every skin type and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all Beauty Counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high-definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code CLEANFORALL20 to get 20% off site-wide. and they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Chris Masterjohn. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so, so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. So this is one of those guests that when I first decided way back in the day to even start this podcast, I made my list of dream guests. And today's guest was at the very, very top of that list. I am here with Chris Masterjohn. I have been following his work for years probably since around 2014 how long have you been blogging chris on the internet
0: well it depends what you mean by blogging but i've been writing since 2004
2: okay so long time i i i know the word blog is <laughs> sounds very casual this is more than just a blog but i've been following your work probably since around 2014 what's so so incredible about chris's work is he covers pretty much every topic you could ever think of related to health and nutrition and not surface level. I was actually talking about this because I mentioned to my co-host on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast that I was going to be recording this today. And I was thinking about it, whenever I read about a topic that you write about, somehow you go into it deeper than anything I've read from anyone else. And I always walk away having learned something that nobody else has talked about. And it makes so much sense, the stuff that you say. And I just don't know how (laughs) this isn't more common knowledge. So in any case, I heard you recently on our mutual friend Rob Wolf's podcast. So I begged Rob to introduce me and here we are. So I am just really, really excited. I what's interesting and we're saying this before the show is there are so many topics i just want to pick your brain on so this might just be a like a rabbit hole of wonderful adventures into science So on your website, you have your bio. You earned your PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut in 2012. Then you served as a postdoctoral research associate in the comparative biosciences department of the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Illinois. And then you were assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College from 2014 to 2016. But what I love at the very end of your bio is you say, Please join me in the pursuit of truth, learning, and wonder. And that is just pretty much the most amazing challenge that you can put out there. So all that to say, I'm very, very excited. And thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: So to start things off, I imagine a lot of my listeners are probably very familiar with you. But for those who are not, can you just tell us a little bit about your personal story were you always interested in nutrition? Did you have an epiphany one day that made you want to go that route? What led you to doing what you are doing today?
0: I think if we go way back, my interest in nutrition was largely influenced by watching my mother's battle with fibromyalgia. She had you know, a phase in her life where she was just in constant pain, not sleeping at all because of it. And she got involved in a, a variety of holistic approaches that included macrobiotic diet and yoga and herbalism and all kinds of stuff like that. You know, whatever it was, she experienced a tremendous amount of healing and achieved a life that was, you know, I don't know if it was completely pain-free, but you know, one where she had, you know, gotten a normal life back. And so that you know i that was when I was a teenager, and so I was very interested in alternative health and you know which you know included understanding nutrition at that time, and you know th- those experiences for her also made her buy a lot of books, like prescription for nutritional healing was an early one, and you know so I would flip through them and and had an appreciation of nutrition because of that my curiosity and self-experimentation led me down a number of different diet-related routes. I was on the Zone diet for a while. Barry Sears made that. That's like a 40% carb, 30% fat, 30% protein, plus fish oil kind of diet. Then I got into veganism. I read a book called Diet for a New America by John Robbins of Baskin and Robbins, Heritage
2: of Baskin and Robbins.
0: Yeah, yeah, he was like. I mean, I don't. I'm not sure where he was in the family, but he was one of the the Robbins family from Baskin and Robbins, and he he kind of was the family black sheep that (laughs) decided that his um, family fortune was built on poisoning people by feeding them dairy products. (laughs) So you know that that book argued that going vegan was basically going to save your own health as well as the welfare of the animals and the welfare of the planet. And so for those three reasons, I went vegan. I kind of eased into it over six months. I was vegetarian for a bit and then vegan. The vegan phase didn't work out very well for me at all. And it was my recovery from that that really launched me into the career that I have now. So when I was vegan, I developed a number of problems. One was that my teeth fell apart. So I, you know, I I did have kind of a high cavity rate when I was a kid. I hadn't gotten a cavity in a long time by the time I was in, you know, my very late teens to early twenties. The vegan period kind of overlapped. I might have been twenty when I was. I was either nineteen or twenty. So it could sort of overlap the turning of my teen, my late teenage into twenties. I hadn't had a cavity for a long time, but the next time I went to the dentist after I had been vegan, I had over a dozen cavities and I needed two root canals. So that was that was a big problem. <laughs> um, another thing that happened was I had anxiety disorders that, you know, kind of the collection of all the ones you would find in a textbook, but kind of, you know, mildly neurotic nuisance levels when I was a teenager. And they aggravated, you know, by an order or two of magnitude to the point where I was probably borderline psychotic when I was vegan. I remember one time, one particularly poignant example. I was just completely obsessed with the idea that my food was like drugged or poisoned, and so I was like constantly checking for signs of this. And I remember one time where I was inspecting my veggie burger. I was inspecting the wrapper for like 20 minutes looking for signs of tampering. After some large number of those minutes, I think I had like scratched the wrapper. And so I found my evidence, but I you know, couldn't decide whether I did it or was there the whole time. I was so hungry and I got really, really angry myself for not being able to eat any food. I just threw the vegger, veggie burger across the room at the wall and then went into my room and cried. So many, many things in the story happened that eventually helped me to learn of the work of Weston Price. And the first thing, Weston Price was the first research director for what became the American Dental Association for 25 years. And then he became a pioneer in nutritional anthropology. And he he was exploring the world, studying traditional diets and the transition of modern diets in the 1920s and 30s. And he was writing in the 1930s and 40s about it in a, in a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And he had basically documented, I guess, two principles, one of which I think is not really very surprising or controversial today, which is that as people went from their traditional diets to what he called the displacing foods of modern commerce, white flour, white sugar white rice, canned vegetable oils, syrups and canned goods their health you know dramatically declined so physical degeneration as he put in that title and he was particularly adept at studying teeth and and facial structure and so that's you know where his work really shined was in studying the destruction of the teeth and the palate that happened you know the teeth in the first generation and just the 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 palate and the facial structure in the second generation on these foods and i think not that every finding related to that was i should say he he didn't call his book nutrition and tooth decay because he also developed a lot of evidence especially when he could talk to doctors that that lived with these people and could report on the incidence of other problems he he basically found that the destruction of the teeth and the palate correlated with the dramatic rise in basically all degenerative diseases so he had some pretty good evidence around cancer and gallbladder problems and some other issues and he had some moderate level evidence around heart disease but you know the the principal finding was that it when you move onto a diet that is mostly based around white flour white sugar and these other displacing foods of modern commerce, your health just completely falls apart. And I I don't think that would surprise anyone. I mean, most people just to some degree acknowledge that you can't eat mostly white flour and white sugar. The other side of that, though, was that he really emphasized that these groups that he was studying on their traditional diets who who were extremely healthy had... Bodies of wisdom about what to eat built on generations of experience, and that they very much went out of their way to get certain categories of foods. That price, you know, he decided the important thing that tied these categories together was these foods' content of fat soluble vitamins. And so he outlined four categories of foods. And he said, not every group ate all of them, but all these groups went wildly out of their way to procure foods from at least one, if not more than one of these categories. And these categories, as he grouped them, were egg yolks and organ meats in one category, dairy products, always full-fat dairy products in another category, the animal life of the sea, so fish and especially shellfish in the third category. And then the fourth category was small animals like frogs and insects. And of course, in that fourth category, when you're eating animals that are that small, you are kind of intrinsically eating the whole animal. And so, you know, that one of the things that kind of, you know, know, I mean, the same thing is true with like, I mean, generally speaking, all these groups did eat the whole animal anyway. But, you know, if you're talking about shellfish, you're sort of, they're not quite wired the way that, that like a, (laughs) walking animal is, you know, but you are eating the whole thing. And so, you know, the presence of sort of whole animal consumption, you know, with organ meats in one category, organ meats and egg yolks in one category and, and shellfish in another category and, and small animals in another category is really something that's tying these together. And so I am reading this while I'm kind of on my way out of veganism. And I'm realizing that not only was i not eating any of these foods as a vegan but even most of my omnivorous friends were not eating many of these foods you know i would say in the american diet the ones that we eat the most of are are eggs and dairy but egg yolks have been kind of shamed from a health perspective for a long time because of their cholesterol content people don't eat Organ meats anymore, for the most part. Some people do, but most people don't. Fish and shellfish is very hit or miss. You know, some people like seafood, and some people don't. And most, and you know, the average person doesn't eat a lot of seafood. Of course, like pretty much no one eats small animals and insects in, in mainstream society. And so, you know, I realized that I had gone from a from a very <laughs> mediocre omnivorous diet, you know, not a good omnivorous diet to The complete end of that pole of not a great diet (laughs) in my vegan diet, where I just you know wasn't eating any of the foods that were on these in these categories. So I rearranged my diet along the principles of Weston Price to especially emphasize nutrient dense animal foods, including uh, including organ meats. And remember the story that I had, had told you about the veggie burger. Like now, now fast forward to a few months into this diet. I find myself in the dining hall where I worked. I was a dishwasher as an undergrad during this time. And and so I was responsible for bringing the clean plates out. And I see this guy pick up the stack of plates to take a plate from the middle of the stack. And I judge him. I'm like, thinking in my head, I'm like, why didn't the guy just take the plate on the top of the stack? Like, what a weirdo. <laughs> And so I just keep walking and I'm like, oh hum. And then all of a sudden, like 20 seconds later, it hits me. I'm like, wait a second. A few months before that, not only did I never take the plate from the top, top of the stack, but that was like the absolute least neurotic thing that I ever did around food. Like, you know, I was the one responsible for cleaning the dishes and even I would spend 20 minutes Picking out a glass that was clean enough to to drink out of. And as I had told you before, you know, quite often I couldn't eat anything. And so then it just hit me that I, you know, not only had my mental health undergone a complete revolution since I had started eating along the principles of Weston Price, but this change was so stark and so dramatic and so completely. You know, I was so mentally completely different from how I'd been that I didn't even remember being like that just a few months before. And the tiniest example of food neuroticism that was nowhere near as deranged as anything that I was engaged in at that time, even that just seemed completely foreign to me. So that experience was was incredibly profound, and I and the tooth decay also stopped. As a side note, I mean that was the real thing that pushed me into my current career because I wanted some way to pay forward what I'd learned. I thought of going into medical school. I I, as well as my professors and the people that I worked with and friends, there were just many realizations from me and and from others around me that. I was much more suited to doing research than medicine. You know, in particular I think that with my analytical brain I'm much better at cracking puzzles and coming up with solutions that other people can use to improve their health rather than taking a body of knowledge of what is known and and applying it over and over again. I feel like those are kind of the the big differences between what medicine would have been and and research. And so that took me to my PhD in nutritional sciences and into my current position of independently creating science education around that topic.
2: Wow. Okay. I was hoping you were going to tell the plate story. (laughs) So many questions just from that. I think my audience is going to be really excited to hear this conversation because... So I bring on people from... All different perspectives on this show. And I think people get a little bit confused and overwhelmed because, you know, one day I'll bring on a carnivore person, you know, like Sean Baker or Paul Saladino. And then the next day it's like last week it was Dr. Neil Bernard, who is very much in the vegan camp.
0: I had a debate with him once on Intelligence Squared.
2: Oh, really? How did that go?
0: It was me and Joel Salatin against him and Gene Bauer, the author of Farm Sanctuary. The motion was don't eat anything with a face. And And we lost the debate based on a larger percentage of audience voting either neutral or for our position, who shifted to their position at the end of the debate.
2: It was wonderful to have him on the show, and I was really surprised because I didn't reach out to him. His people actually reached out to me. It was hard to get answers. Like the, the, the biggest comments that I've been getting on that episode, because it just aired, is that he didn't really answer my questions, but that's okay. Going back to the plates and the the neuroticism and all of that. So one of the most controversial things I think I have aired on this show, a statement that was made by a guest that sparked a lot of controversy was I had Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride on, the author of The GAPS Diet. And she was talking about how people who are vegan often have these episodes that they don't even remember where they go and eat non-vegan foods Have you heard of that happening?
0: I've never heard of that happening, but I will tell you two things that I know of. One is that if you look at survey data, the vast majority of people who report being vegan or vegetarian report, actually report occasionally eating chicken and fish. There's a very large percentage of people who identify that way, and yet you know, even though the even though they're identifying with something that's an absolute principle, they are in practice just generally eating that way, but not all the time. And then I will also tell you that I, in fact, have you know very patchy memory from when I was a vegan. And actually, my mother told me in the last year or two, I didn't remember this at all. That during that time, I had gone to the emergency room during a panic attack, like seven times, and i and you don't remember I remember one of them <laughs> I don't remember seven uh, <laughs> yeah, so i mean i don't I don't think that I had times where I blacked out and ate chicken <laughs> but apparently I had times where I blacked out and a lot of and a lot of vegans eat chicken, so so <laughs>
2: So it is a possibility. There's a study that is really interesting that they were looking at the brains of vegans. I don't know if it, they're comparing it to vegans. I think vegans and omnivores. And when they looked at a piece of meat and basically the conscious part of the vegan brain didn't light up. So like they didn't perceive that they wanted the meat, but the like subconscious desire parts of the brain did light up. Paul Saladino talks about it. I thought it was really interesting. So, what do you think is happening with people? Because there are people, well, so they say, who are vegan lifelong, and with longevity. Let's let's just throw out Loma Linda, shall we? <laughs> what do you think is going on there? Is it
0: possible? Oh, sure. I mean, I I think I think the easiest. I, I have no reason to doubt that there are people who. Do veganism long term and thrive on it? There's not a whole lot of them. I mean, we're dealing with a a small anecdotal sample size. If you look at the data, just survey data, generally indicates that ex-vegans outnumber current vegans by two to one. So it would seem that that you know on with any given cross-sectional slice of time, there are more people by a factor of two to one or so, who don't do well on a vegan diet than who do. And of course, there's a lot of, I think you you probably have some selection bias in favor of people who would do well on a vegan diet actually doing a vegan diet. So I'm quite sure that if you randomly allocated people to a vegan diet, that you would have, you know, just allowed people to follow how they felt, I, I'm sure you would wind up with way more than a two to one ratio having a negative experience with a vegan diet. You know, so you're selecting for the people that are good candidates for it, and you're winding up with a two to one attrition rate. So you know, I think that generally speaking, people don't do well on a vegan diet, but there are, you know, that third of people who stay on it for some given amount of time, and the anecdotes of people, who do well on it and thrive on it? I have no reason to think that they're lying or deceiving themselves or us. I mean, I would just, yeah. You know, I mean, that might be happening, but I would rather just simply acknowledge those stories and say, you know, my my way to reconcile the good experiences with the bad experiences is to invoke the clearly true fact that people are you know, very wildly in their nutritional requirements. And, you know, if you look at a vegan diet, it generally can supply all of the essential nutrients as defined in a textbook, where it's particularly weak, uh, you know, if it's well designed, where it's particularly weak is on issues of how well absorbed are some of those nutrients from certain foods how well you know, some of those nutrients have to undergo undergo metabolic conversions in order to be useful and so the animal form of that nutrient might be different than the plant form of that nutrient and the animal form of that nutrient is closer to what or is what humans require and so some people might be better at making that conversion some people worse at making that conversion and then of course there are many things that are present in animal foods that are not classified as essential nutrients but still might be health promoting and so you know bio like the absorption of calcium from different foods is not just dependent on calcium would be one nutrient where it tends to be less well absorbed from from plant foods than from animal foods or from many plant foods and animal foods. Not only does that depend on the, the particular food that you're eating, but it also depends on the person's gut. And so, you're gonna have variations from person to person on calcium absorption from the gut. The nutrients that require metabolic conversions, examples include vitamin B6, vitamin A, essential fatty acids. Some people are great at making those conversions from plants, and other people are terrible at it. And so, there's gonna be a variation around that. And then you know on things that are not classified as essential nutrients but are found exclusively in animal foods you know whether it's carnitine or carnosine or you name it from from animal foods the plant and the animal foods are just full of all you know many thousands of things that are not essential nutrients that might have some you know health value of consuming them you know if there are it's generally not well studied when some people are that you know, worse than others at making something creatine, I guess, as an example, like you know different people's synthesis of creatine is different, and this is something that you can get from animal foods that you can't get from plant foods. But no one really studies the synthesis of creatine. No one cares. <laughs> I mean, because you know there's a very there's very rare defects in creatine synthesis that are, exceedingly rare. And so those get studied, but they're not thought to have applicability to other people. But if it's not considered an essential nutrient, no one's really out there trying to study, are there some people that need this under some conditions? Just generally, our knowledge of those things aren't aren't very good. But I would not be at all surprised if variations in the ability to synthesize things like creatine, carnitine, carnosine, and so on, are or cholesterol even, are contributing to why some people just, you know, do terrible on a vegan diet and others do fine. And so I I think it's, you know, totally plausible that there are certain people that because of their constitution, genetics, gut, etc., they don't have a problem eating a high-fiber diet. They don't have a problem with plant toxins. They don't have a high need for animal-based non-essential nutrients. They are great at making metabolic conversions from plants for vitamin A, for vitamin B6, for essential fatty acids. They are great at absorbing calcium from the gut, you know, just all these factors that you could list. They just check the boxes on all of them. And so they're pretty compatible with a vegan diet. And those might be the people that thrive on it, you know, but, but that there's a lot of boxes to check. And so, it might be quite rare in the population that someone checks all the boxes and you really only have to not check one of the boxes to have a bad experience on a vegan diet because if you're terrible at converting the plant form of vitamin A to the form that you need and you check all the other boxes you're going to wind up with a vitamin A deficiency and you don't have it doesn't matter if you're if you're great on all of your other nutrients if you're deficient in one of them you're going to have serious problems yeah, so I I see no reason to think that there's not some people who do great on a vegan diet.
2: Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando. And it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course there's lots of danger coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like BrainTap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Okay, that touches on something that I did have a huge question about talking about the potential to synthesize certain vitamins and our requirements, it kind of explains it based on what you were talking about earlier with Western Price and realizing that all these different populations ate, you know, one of these four food groups. I'm very much curious how humans as species evolved, you know, with different societies and different ways. How can we have such similar needs, like how can there be blanket statement dietary recommendations for the nutrients as a human, regardless of your genetics, your ancestry? And then, so I guess the first question is, are these RDAs, and I guess you could talk about the official RDAs versus what the actual RDAs might be, but are the RDAs pretty consistent regardless of your genetics and your background and your your genetics and your background. And then two, that ability to synthesize or not, is that based completely on historically what you would have been exposed to or does it also affect the amount that you actually need? If you're not able to synthesize something as much, does that at all mean that you don't need it as much or do you still need it? It's just historically you didn't need that genetic Pathway to synthesize it more?
0: Generally, if well, I'll answer the second question first. Generally, if you can't synthesize something, you need it. That is, you know, the, the evolutionary explanation for that would be you had it, and so therefore you didn't need to synthesize it, which means that you need it more.
2: So if you can't synthesize it, you would need it even more in your diet. Does it actually affect the Total amount that you need compared to somebody else, or is that pretty consistent?
0: Well, okay, let me go back to your first question before I answer that because your first question was about amounts. So the RDAs, so there's the National Academy of Medicine, which used to be until recently was the Institute of Medicine, their food and nutrition board sets the dietary reference intakes or DRIs. And within the DRIs, there are minimal amounts and upper limits and various other values that feed into them. And so the most popular of those is the, or the one that people pay the most attention to is the RDA, which is the recommended dietary allowance. And then when there's not enough evidence to make an RDA, there is an AI or an adequate intake. And then there also are tolerable upper intake levels, which usually people, if they refer to them at all, just call them the upper limit. Those are set for some nutrients and not others, just based on whether there's any known toxicity. And then very recently, just with the salt and potassium guidelines, they came out with a, a new one, which is, don't know if I remember it right, I think it's the chronic, it's something like the chronic disease... Reduction requirement. I'm I'm messing it up, but it's it's one that's aimed at not preventing a deficiency disease, but rather reducing the risk of a chronic disease. And so then, when people look at the values on a food package, usually those are the daily values that are set by the FDA. They are not set by the National Academy of Medicine, and they are not part of the group of DRI's that I was just talking about but they usually are derived in some way from the DRI set by the National Academy of Medicine but actually there are some there are sometimes some very significant discrepancies so like for the longest time the daily val- and they were recently revised but for like most of our lives the daily values were actually using like old DRIs from significantly longer ago. And so you would see, for example, that like the daily value for biotin was like 10 times higher, according to the FDA, than, than the adequate intake set by the Institute of Medicine. There are definite discrepancies with what you'll find on a food label for these. But like dieticians will usually utilize the DRIs. Food tracking apps will often, they may be using the daily values or the DRIs, you would have to look. And then if you if you Google like what's the RDA for something or what's the upper limit for something, you're generally going to find the DRIs. Okay. So the RDA, when there's an RDA set for a nutrient is set on the assumption that the amounts, and this is where I'm getting to the answer to your question about, about variation. The RDA assumes that there's variation in the amount that different people need of a nutrient and the RDA is not meant to be used by an individual to say, you need to consume this amount. Rather, the RDA is basically set for a population, and first what they do is they calculate an estimated average requirement, or EAR, for a population. And then they try to make the RDA cover 97.5% of the needs of that population. And Generally, like so, what they usually this involves like assumptions rather than data. So, and that's because usually they have no idea what the variation in the need for a nutrient in the population is. So, like, the standard thing that they do is they say, We have no idea what the variation in the need for this nutrient is. So, we will assume that it is normally distributed, which means that it takes the shape of an ideal bell curve and we will assume that you know if you have so if you have data that that takes the shape of an ideal bell curve two standard deviations covers you know would move you like if you take the mean and you go up two standard deviations you'll arrive at the 97.5% coverage point so you have 2.5% of the area of that bell curve is is left out So they assume that there's a bell curve of some variation. They say, we have no idea what that variation is, but we'll assume that a standard deviation is 10%. And so we will cover the need for 97.5% of the population by taking the estimated average requirement and multiplying it by 1.2. In other words, adding the two standard deviations of 10%, so adding 20% to it. To cover the needs of 97.5% of the people. Now, one of the problems with this approach is that anytime they ever do have any data on the variation in the need for this nutrient, it's way higher than 10%. So, like there's never been a nutrient where they've measured the variation and the needs for the nutrient in the population and arrived at something as small as 10%. But They, you know, for a very long time when the DRIs were being set, the person who was like the chair of the committee over, like, actually, probably the majority of the DRIs that are set was at that time very concerned that if you set the RDAs too high, everyone would be go out and be supplementing. And then, every then we'd wind up with like a mass vitamin toxicity problem. Under this concern, they systematically erred on the side of setting the DRIs to be in the absence of knowing exactly where they should be on the lower end of where they thought they might, they might turn out. And so if you look, for example, at niacin, niacin is a case where they had four studies that all estimated the variation in the need for niacin. And those studies were suggesting that the variation was like more like 30 or 40% was the standard deviation. And they said, you know, if you look at the, at the paper that they, that they wrote in justifying the DRI for niacin, they said clearly from these studies, the variation in the need is greater than the customary 10%. And they're saying this on the basis of a finding that it's 30, 40, 45%. And so they say, given that it's clearly greater than the customary 10%, we don't know exactly what it is, we're going to say it's 15%. And so the RDA for niacin is set on the estimated average requirement multiplied by two standard deviations of 15%, in other words, multiplied by 1.3, and that's how they get the RDA. But you know, notice that the actual measured variation was still more than twice what they said it was. So, I mean, the two things to take away from this are that the whole idea of the RDA assumes that there's variation in the population, not that everyone needs the same thing. And so the RDA is not a blanket recommendation for everyone to eat the RDA. That's not, that's not what the RDA, means. the RDA means. The RDA means that if you eat that amount, you basically have a 97.5% probability of meeting your need for it. But the variation, but the RDAs systematically underestimate the variation, and so you, what you would expect from that is that many, many people are getting their needs filled when they're eating the RDA, but some some percentage of people that is larger than the expected two and a half percent are not getting their needs met.
2: So, if we follow the RDAs. (laughs) We have a ninety-seven point five percent chance of getting enough based on the range of what they're going on for what people might actually need, but it might actually be much a much larger range than that.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's putting aside all the other questions about you know how has the science evolved since the RDA was made, and you know was their analysis of the science at that time good? Just on a purely mathematical basis, you you know if you eat the RDA you have a 97.5% chance of getting enough for your needs if you assume that their assumption about the variation is as small as they assumed it to be. But all the evidence indicates that it's not. And so I don't know what the percentage is that's not getting what they need when they eat the RDA. But just on mathematical grounds, it has to be larger than that 2.5% that they say it is. Most people don't know that the RDA is designed to give you a 2.5% chance of not getting enough of the nutrient, though.
2: That is a mind-blowing fact for today. Never look at the RDA
0: the same way again. Oh, wait. Like, can I Can I give you one extra fact about that? Please do. I love extra facts. Because I, I, I find this like an infuriating scam. So going on this concern that if we, if we tell... We don't want to tell people that the whole population is deficient in something or we're going to create... Well, I think they're all like I think on the DL they're like concerned that they will make themselves look bad if they're the nutrition experts that are managing the population and they you know publish data about how the population's intake of a nutrient sucks because they're in charge of the food supply and and they don't you know they they want to say good it's sort of like when they publish data about what the new what the population is taking in yes they want to identify problems and fix it, but it's kind of like a state of the union address. You don't want to come up and say, you know, if you're the president, you don't come out and say, well, the state of the union sucks. And so anyway, the the guidance for using the DRIs to measure population level intakes is to say that you should not use the RDA as a metric. You should use the estimated average requirement of a metric. And the and the, what they say is if you're measuring the average intake in the population and you want to compare it to something to see if it's good or not, you should use the average intake the estimated average requirement because if the average intake is greater than the estimate is is as good or better than the estimated average requirement, then everything's great. But this is based on a preposterous premise, which is that if the intake of something varies in the population that it is automatically varying such that the people with a high need for something are eating more of it and the people with a low need for something are eating less of it, right? So, y- like, yes, there's variation around the average, but actually there's literally nothing stopping the people who need the highest intake of vitamin A from eating the lowest and the people with the lowest need for it eating the highest. I mean, if the average re- intake is, is meeting the average requirement, that's equally consistent with everyone getting enough and everyone being deficient.
2: It could go either way, yeah.
0: Right, yeah, like if, if and presumably it's random, right? Like presumably there also is no reason why the people with the highest need would eat the lowest intake, so that's...
2: Will people's cravings naturally drive them towards going what they need?
0: I mean, generally, generally not. I mean, like you could hypothesize that and it's a reasonable hypothesis and it's worthy of research, but like generally the science indicates that like rats are more likely to do that than humans i mean just look at how people eat i mean people obviously crave hyperpalatable foods that make them fat and don't crave things that are health promoting i mean when was the last time you saw someone who was craving liver versus ice cream <laughs> i mean
2: I have a question about that, actually. No, not to, sorry, not to go on a rabbit hole.
0: Okay, well let me let me just let me just finish that that the statistical the statistical point, and then we can go straight to that question. So, the the point is like it, it's equally plausible, like it's equally unlikely that the people are going to be eating opposite to their needs as they are going to eat be eating like perfectly to their needs, and absence. You know, absent specific evidence of it, the assumption should be that the variation around the average intake is driven by kind of random factors that are at least random to like with respect to the unknown physiologically driven needs of someone. And so, it, what I believe that when you're looking at the population and you're trying to identify the nutrients of concern, as they call them. You actually want the population to, on average, be eating somewhere around the RDA because then it doesn't like if you're if the RDA covers 97.5% of the needs of people, then you know just you don't need to know their needs. Like you just know that if that's true, if the RDA principle is true, then 97.5% of people are meeting the needs. If the average person is eating the average intake, then all that you know, all that tells you is like the, like the person in the middle, who's like eating the mi- middle amount. Like actually, it doesn't even tell you that. Like it basically doesn't tell you anything about whether the people are meeting their own needs. And so, I just find that an infuriating statistical error. But I, I don't think it's quite like a an oversight. I think it's driven by like n- them not wanting to say that the population is by and large eating a diet that's not very nutritious and and sort of an irrational fear that will get people you know over supplementing into the toxicity range if we reveal to them that they might be shy on their nutrients and so it's sort of like a, a massive cover up of the state of nutritional adequacy but anyway I'm done with that with that rant
2: so the way to be most transparent I guess is not practical which would be to for every nutrient, say this is the range from here to here, and we don't know what you need in that range. What's the practical solution?
0: That would be the most transparent thing to say. Although I, I think you have a you'd have a big problem trying to translate that onto like food packages. Yeah, not go so well.
2: <laughs> that idea that they have this fear of people having supplement toxicity. What do you think is more dangerous, erring on the side of deficiencies or erring on the side of oversupplementation?
0: I think that, I think that like overwhelmingly with nutrients, you have a huge window where you can get more than you need without getting toxic. These aren't pharmaceutical drugs where the risk profile is such that there's no principled assumption of safety through any exposure range, like generally speaking, humans have overconsumed. Like one of the one of the points that Weston Price made was that if you measured the nutrients of these extremely healthy people on their traditional diets, who had not gone through modern industrialization, they generally like fourfold overconsumed their basal requirement, and. His point was that if the diet generally fourfold overconsumed the nutrient, then as you go through life and you encounter numerous things that raise your requirement above the basal requirement, you don't run deficient. So if you get pregnant, you yeah, there's special diets for pregnant women that will overconsume pregnancy-related nutrition even a little bit more than that, but if you randomly get pregnant— when you weren't specifically preparing for it, you are coming from a background where you know you're not deficient and 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 if you don't know that you're pregnant, you know, you are automatically consuming enough for pregnancy by default before you figure it out. You know, if you get injured and now you have to heal. like you know all these different things that might raise you know, or as a child, if you're growing, like, all these different things that could raise your requirements for the nutrients like the the default of the diet is just set so that you are hitting on the higher side of where your needs might go rather than getting the bare minimum if you're trying to target the minimum all the time then all it takes is the slightest rise above the basal requirement like the slightest injury that you know the slightest illness that you have to heal from or fight off, or the slightest wound to push your requirements slightly above that so you're running a marginal deficit. Why would you want to be flirting with a marginal deficit all the time? It doesn't make any sense. But I mean, to, getting back to another point that's a little bit closer to what, what I, I think the way you were asking it, because that's been our ancestral strategy it's really clear that we can overconsume our needs by a factor of three or four and not result in toxicity. But it's also just true for modern science. Like if you just look at where the Institute of Medicine set that the upper intake levels relative to the RDAs, they were almost always like several fold or way more than that above the basic requirement. And so, you know, if you can you know for example like well, let's take a random one so the RDA for vitamin B6 is less than 2 milligrams a day and the upper limit is 100 milligrams a day and yeah you can have debates about like should they lower the upper limit or whatever but my you know my point is that this strongly implies like a very huge window where if you're consuming 3 or 4 or 5 milligrams you're way above the RDA but you're nowhere near the upper limit I think it's just very clear on sort of like the principle of having a large window between the minimal requirement and the toxicity. This has to be the case that you would want to be nowhere near either end of that window. And so, you know, being 20% into that window might take you three or four times above the minimal requirement for the nutrient. But if you're nowhere near toxicity, why wouldn't you want to be there? Why, you know, why would you want to be anywhere near flirting with the edge of deficiency?
2: That range for toxicity, does it range or is it pretty set in stone? Is it the same as the deficiency?
0: Oh, well, I mean, it, it's probably the same in principle, but the data is always very sparse and so they don't they don't set it like that. The the way that they set it is they Look for a no adverse effect observed level and a lowest adverse effect observed level. And they try to impute where the true value of the lowest observed adverse effect. And if they're, and then they multiply it by an uncertainty factor. And that uncertainty factor, because you're trying to protect against toxicity, brings the upper limit lower than where it would be without that uncertainty factor. And the poorer the data is, the more conservative you are. And so for vitamin B6, in the example I just gave, the evidence was very poor about where toxicity started. And the lowest dose used in case reports of neurological disorders that could be caused by it were using 500 milligrams of vitamin B6 per day. And they said because the data is so sparse and so unclear, we are going to use a safety factor of five. And so they divided 500 milligrams by five to get 100 milligrams. Whereas in other cases where they know a real lot about that data, they'll use a very narrow uncertainty factor and they might you know, decrease, decrease the upper limit by 30% or something like that because of it. And there obviously is going to be people that do not get a toxic response above the upper limit but they don't try to characterize what that distribution is. So the upper limit is is sort of like it's designed kind of – so the RDA is designed so that like 97.5% of people will get enough getting it. The tolerable tolerable upper intake level is sort of like placed outside of the curve on the left so that there's some bell curve of toxic responses across doses – above the tolerable upper intake level, but you're not trying to be part of that curve at all. So you are trying to be way to the left of that curve, meaning a much lower dose of the nutrient so that you're not even in the curve. So the distribution theoretically exists, but they're not trying to characterize it because they're just trying to not be part of it. (laughs) They're saying there's some bell curve of distribution over there, but we don't care what it is. We're going to stay over here. We're going to go nowhere near that bell curve.
2: The question that I thought of when you were talking earlier that you touched on this is something that has haunted me for so long, and it has to do with cravings of things. And you talked about, you know, people don't go out craving liver. So, liver is one of those quote superfoods. Like, it's often, you know, it has all of these different nutrients in it, and it's often prescribed as a food to turn to for nutritional status. But I feel like there are so few people that naturally like liver like it's hard to get people to eat liver even people following like a whole foods based diet like even i like i pretty much love everything but like plain liver i i just can't stomach and like why is that why do we not have a craving for liver i mean i don't want to make a blanket statement but i have noticed this just in general when it has so many nutrients is it because of toxicity issues
0: i mean that's plausible and worthy of investigation but i doubt it I don't know if you've ever talked to Stefan Guillen, but I think he would be a great person to ask about this as well, just on the topic of, he's a neuroscientist who, you know, we look at a lot of the same stuff, but he, he comes from more of a neuroscience background. But my answer to that would be, first of all, rats do crave liver. If you go way back in time, back to when they used to feed rats actual food, you know, like now like lab rats are typically getting purified diets that have each component put together into a pellet.
2: Yeah, which I feel like like messes up I don't know a lot of potential findings.
0: Well, it de- it depends on it depends on your perspective. I mean, what what really messes up a lot of potential findings is the fact that they they don't give rats toys so that they don't move because if you try to make rats fat but you give them a hamster wheel, there's no way you can make them fat. Like you can't feed them anything that makes them fat. So, side note: <laughs> When I was in grad school, I was talking with with my with my advisor about toys because the veterinarians were. So, if you run animal experiments, your animals are in this like high security place where they have like vets on call twenty four seven, and there's staff that to take care of the animal place, and you just go down there to feed them and they're like (laughs) these are i'm part well part of the security is to not get pathogens in part of the security is to not get like you know blown up by animal rights activists or something so like not where when i was did my postdoc all the animal facilities were like not placed on the naps of the school and they were like and they were like you know these doors that you wouldn't notice to get there and you had and you had to have like you you had to get like your your scannable id had to get modified so you would have permission to get in there and there's like this door that you know leads to like this white hallway to this other door it's like very hidden but also there but also you just you know you have to go through this like protocol to you know enter this enter this transition room where you put the clothes on that are going to stop you from tracking in any pathogens or whatever but anyway that's not the point the point is the veterinarians were always very pro toy they always felt that the animals should be given toys because it's good for their mental health and i was talking to my advisor about this and he was you know he was always very anti toy and the conversation was basically like well look if you give them toys like you can't give them dietary induced obesity and so you can't study anything about dietary induced obesity like we studied fatty liver disease and one of the models was in dietary induced obesity because if you Induce obesity with diet, then you will also induce fatty liver because if you make an animal fat, you make their livers fat as well, and so then that would allow us to study other things just for their protective effect against fatty liver disease. And he's like, if you give them a toy, they're not going to get fat. If they don't get fat, they're not going to get fatty liver. If they're not going to get fatty liver, how are you going to study like green tea's impact on fatty liver disease? And I said, you know, like, well, wouldn't it wouldn't it be more realistic if they were given toys because then. You know that you would have a more realistic view of what actually induces obesity in them. And he said, "What did he say? He said we're not about natural; we're about control. And so what he meant was, you know, it's we're not about trying to reproduce a realistic environment. We're tr- we're about trying to create a reliable model of a disease so we can study the disease. And so as long as you control for the fact that none of the animals get the toys, then." that's a good model. You have a rely, whatever you did change, your experimental variable, you you know is, is that's the only change in the animals that got that variable that you wanted to study. And so, yes, there's a problem of, well, look, there's a problem of generalizing from animals to humans no matter what. And so there is, there is sort of another problem if it's not realistic for like the life of an animal. But, you know, it's it's also like, None of these animals. You're already so removed from real life anyway, like the real life of a rat, just by the fact that you have like all these inbred, you know, or otherwise highly controlled breeding of rats and mice. Like these these animals are already bred to be like specific models of disease, and not like the subway rat or the wild brown rat. And so. Yeah, you are removing them from reality another step by using a purified diet. But those diet the reason they made those diets in the first place was because they they wanted to be able to study like the toxicity of a of a toxin or the carcinogenicity of a carcinogen and they didn't want all these random things getting in the way like you blended together a bunch of food, but like in that batch, the food was high in selenium and in that batch, it wasn't like, so that, you know, that's why they evolved that way. And so it's a trade-off. You have more highly controlled experiments, but you can question how relevant they are even to animals that are eating whole foods. But then again, you, you know, even if they were eating whole foods, you really have to be careful about generalizing from a rat or a mouse to a human anyway, you know, so it's not, it's not making or breaking the science really but it's it's but it is important to acknowledge that but anyway back in the day when they used to feed animals foods they did experiments where they just looked at like the preferences of the lab rat for different foods and what that generally showed was depending on what other food was available they tended to eat they tended to like choose foods that fulfilled their nutritional requirement so for example They would always highly prioritize liver. But once they ate a certain amount of liver, they'd stop eating it. So they wouldn't overeat the liver. Like they craved the right amount of liver. And if you gave them a lot of white flour, they would specifically choose out wheat germ to like balance, like in the ratio that would balance the original flour. But if the original whole wheat flour but if you gave them like just wheat germ and you didn't give them white flour or you gave them like wheat germ and whole wheat they would eat the whole wheat because it was already balanced and they wouldn't they would like they would only eat a lot of wheat germ if they also had white flour to balance it to try to like reconstruct the whole grain so those experiments suggest that there is something in animal life that at least exists in rats that is very much geared towards trying to choose out the foods that are good for us. Now in humans I don't know. So if you look at the work of Weston Price, he clearly identified traditions around eating foods that they knew were needed to nourish them. But if you if you look at the body of knowledge they had, two things arise. So one was like Price was very emphatic that strength of character to go out of their way and get these foods was very important. So he made it sound very effortful that they were going out to get these foods. Not not that he didn't, like he didn't describe populations that were just like, "Oh, we love liver and we are lucky because of it." It was like we're going to go out of our way to prize these things and to develop a culture around eating them because we know that they're good for you. But also if you look at like what they knew about why they were good for you, there're things like we know that you can eat eyeballs to cure blindness. And so, you know, what kind of blindness is cured by eating eyeballs? Vitamin A deficiency blindness. Like the the Canadian natives of the Arctic, they knew that they could cure scurvy with eating adrenal glands. And so they would when the moose were in mating season, they would cut out what they called a little ba- ball of fat above the kidney, which was not a little ball of fat, it was the adrenal gland, and they would cut up it into into pieces and they would give every little Indian and every big Indian in the tribe a piece of adrenal gland and that's why they didn't get scurvy and why scurvy was a white man's disease. But the fact that they knew that (laughs) indicates that they did get scurvy. (laughs) Like how would they know how to how to prevent scurvy with adrenal glands if they didn't get scurvy. So all of the you know that is particularly consistent with the fact that humans needed more than their cravings to eat a good diet. They needed a body of knowledge that was passed down over generations where they clearly had experience with nutritional def- deficiencies. Now, that doesn't mean that they got nutritional deficiencies because they had completely lost the cravings that other animals have for nutritious foods. You know, it's quite possible that they that just limitations in their environment It could have been that they knew about these deficiencies because of access issues. So, for example, like in a in a new environment where the foods were different, or in a disaster, or a case of over hunting, or or like in you know in marginal environments, like in the Arctic, there's just you know it's very hard to get certain foods during certain parts of the year. So, all of those could have created opportunities for deficiencies that then layered on top of their natural cravings for good foods a body of knowledge that would make them more robust to those deficiencies so that's that's plausible but then you have to ask right why you don't know anyone that loves liver well i so i was just talking i was on a i was interviewed by a guy who lives in or he, he i think he lives in the city now but he's from a, a greek village and he said that you know people fight over the organ meats like during lent they'll fast from animal products and then on pasco or easter they will eat lamb but they like they fight over who gets the brains and who gets the liver and stuff like that so i i think it's possible that these are comp- i mean it, i could come up with two hypotheses so one is that these are totally cultural and so if you have the body of knowledge that liver is so important. You teach your kids that from a young age. And during development, because they eat liver and they and their body feels how they respond to it, and because that's also reinforced culturally, they develop a craving for it because they have programmed their response that way during development. And so during then later during adulthood, they still have that that pro that programmed response. And then you know that. So that's one hypothesis. And then I, I guess another. And these aren't mutually exclusive. But another hypothesis would be our reward system in our brain, in our society, has been completely demolished and deranged by eating hyperpalatable food. So it, it might be that that system actually works normally by default if you don't throw at it foods that have been designed to manipulate it and that it just it is just gets completely deranged by through development eating you know being constantly barraged with foods that are designed to manipulate it to make you eat more of those bad foods and also a culture that reinforces that i mean our our culture doesn't know anything about the value of organ meats and very much treats junk food as kind of like a thing to aspire to. I mean, yeah, there's health culture that that demonizes it, but I think most of us when we grew up grew up with cultural reinforcement of like, oh, it's, you know, I I ate a good dinner, now I get to eat ice cream. And like, you know, these these things were like cultural rewards as well. So I don't I don't know. I mean I, I guess I guess the interesting question would be like if you The thing is, you can't raise a human with no culture. But like, you know, as it would be as a thought experiment, it's interesting to think about like, what if you, you know, raised new humans in a completely free choice environment and taught them nothing about food? Would they have a craving for liver? I, I I don't know. There was
2: a woman who studied this. I was reading about it in a book recently, and she had kid, like baby, or. I don't know how, I don't know how old they were. They were really young, but they were given free access to a range of foods and it included foods like this. The breadth of the foods would cover their quote nutritional requirements. And they wanted to see what the kids would do. And they did naturally eat certain foods. It was kind of like what you were saying before, where they would like, like the rats eating the liver. And then when they get enough, they're done. It was very much that effect. And it was a lot of like weird foods. I'll find it and email it to you.
0: So that's, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And I, it it makes me wonder, you know, how that would evolve over time. Because, I guess, what I'm wondering is, what is causing the disconnect? Is it more the absence of those foods, so they they can't be wired up with brain preferences during development, or is it more that other things are just obstructing this? I mean, you know, like, are those babies? Are they are they learning in real time? that when they eat a certain food, it does something physiologically and their brain makes a new connection and identifies that as a source of nutrition? Or do they come pre-programmed with an instinct that, that, that then would stay as long as if it's not completely overridden by other foods designed to hijack that instinct? I don't know.
2: Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat, They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with dry farm wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, speaking to that, so like the second hypothesis that we're clouded by these hyperpalatable foods, my experience... I think that's probably happening with a lot of people. But then, like my experience, I've been eating a very whole foods diet for a long time. I found that once I cleared my <laughs> cleared my diet of the hyperpalatal foods that I started naturally craving, you know, whole foods. And but I went through a period where I was severely anemic. And by the way, I love all of your work on iron metabolism and all of that. But in any case, at that moment, I was like I was like, if there's a time that I would love liver, it should be now. So I went and I bought some liver and I was like, I'm going to like this because I like whole foods now. I like meat. I'm very anemic. I'm going to like this. And I, I didn't. I had a lot of cognitive dissonance surrounding that. So I don't know if it's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, it was an interesting experience though.
0: To be honest, the only people I know that like liver are people that grew up eating it. And I'm very immersed in the population of people that eat liver. (laughs) Like I've spent, you know, almost 20 years in the Weston A. Price community, and and liver's a big deal in the Weston A. Price community. But when I, you know, when it comes down to it, if I talk to people in or out of that community, you know, everyone there eats liver in some form. You know, some people take capsules, or
2: so I grew up eating it. My grandmother was German. It was that salty, like in the, you know, like in the past, I don't know. It's like all mixed up. It's like the, the pate. I don't know. No, it's not a pate. It, it didn't taste like liver, like just getting a hunk of liver plain.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like liver. I feel better when I eat it. My, my favorite way to eat it is with a, a blend of other organ meats and ground beef with a lot of taco seasoning as crumbles.
2: Mm. Nice. Can't taste. <laughs> okay, you touched on something else that I have massive questions about. I'm so excited that you brought it up. You're talking about the rats at the labs that you would study when you were in a grad student. I heard you on Peter Attia talking about your work with that and what you found about choline and fatty liver. I've been obsessed recently with fatty liver because I recently interviewed Dr. Rick Johnson for his book and then David Perlmutter has a book coming out on uric acid. So it's, I've just been awash thinking about fatty liver and fructose and all of that. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about choline and how it may affect fatty liver. I actually told Rick Johnson that I was interviewing you and he is dying to hear more information about this. <laughs> he was not familiar with these studies.
0: So a fatty liver disease is an accumulation of fat in the liver. And the amount of fat that accumulates in the liver can basically be summarized by the equation fat in minus fat out, as long as under fat out, you also include fat that is burned for energy in the liver. You could separate those. So you could say it's fat in minus fat out minus fat burned would be one way to put that. So anything that makes fat get, you know, anything that caught anything that can lead to fat going through the liver will increase the risk of fatty liver. And anything that brings fat out of the liver will decrease that risk. And if you look at just generally who gets fatty liver, you know, it's very closely tied to obesity. And the reason that it's closely tied to obesity is that when you are overweight or obese, you so actually even if you're lean, you constantly have fat being released as fatty acids and glycerol that goes to the liver and gets turned back into triglycerides and leaves the liver as triglycerides. That cycle is operating in everyone all the time. And so even if you're not eating any food, this is going on all the time. So just by having adipose tissue, your liver is exposed to a source of fat in. And if you have more visceral abdominal fat, then that in particular will be way more risky because the visceral abdominal fat pad empties directly into the liver. Every other fat in your body empties into the bloodstream. And so, if you're emptying fat out into the bloodstream, then you, you know, some of it becomes part of the fat in equation for the liver. But if you have a visceral abdominal fat, and everyone has visceral abdominal fat, some people have more than others, then all of the fat released from it becomes fat in, in the liver. Now, generally speaking, when people are obese, they have way more visceral abdominal fat than people who are not obese. There will be variations. So someone who's obese and has a higher fraction of their fat is visceral abdominal fat, will be more at risk for fatty liver than someone who's obese and has more subcutaneous fat. But just being obese raises, you know, all adipose tissue contributes to this risk to some degree, and the visceral abdominal portion is the major risk. But generally, like people, you know, for, certainly for any given individual, if they get fatter or leaner, they're directly increasing their visceral abdominal fat or decreasing it. Now, fructose, now eating fat increases the amount of fat that goes into the liver. And eating fructose can increase the amount of fat in the liver because fructose compared to starch is more lipogenic, meaning it's more likely to be converted into fat in the liver than starch is. So if you rank macronutrients by how much fat they'll put in the liver, you know, the fatty liver contribution potential is highest with fat and it's lowest with starch. Now, protein is a whole other animal, and I'll get to that in a minute, and it highly relates to the to the choline story. Among fats, the ones that are more easily burned are, are the least likely to contribute to, to fatty liver. So generally, chain length and saturation all increase fatty liver potential. So MCT oil, which is shorter chain, is less likely to contribute to fatty liver than olive oil, which is Long chain fat, but all things being equal, if you're eating more saturated fat you know tallow versus olive oil, the tallow is going to contribute more to the fatty liver now I, I actually i want to I should clarify i don't when I say contribute to fatty liver, I just mean contribute to the fat in portion of that equation that doesn't mean you could eat a one hundred percent tallow diet and not get well not a one hundred percent but you could eat you know inordinate amounts of tallow, and as long as your fat-out part of the equation or fat being burned part of the equation is operating to match it, you will never get fatty liver disease. Okay, so what experiments early, and of course alcohol is also lipogenic and also harms the ability of fat to get out of the liver. And so for the longest time, alcohol was thought to be the exclusive cause of fatty liver disease Starting in the 1950s, there was research showing otherwise, but really in the 1980s it became acknowledged to the point where they started separating people who were had alcoholic and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And that was partly because doctors would accuse like if people showed up with fatty liver disease and their doctor told them to decrease their alcohol intake, and the patient said, I don't drink alcohol, the doctor would say you're lying. Your liver results show it, and they would get sued. <laughs> so, they, you know, not wanting to keep getting sued or ha- keep getting other co- types of complaints, they came up with the they coined the term non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or Nash in er- the early 1980s, and then eventually Nash became a subset of NAFLD or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and Nash refers to the more advanced inflammatory stages, whereas NAFLD, non alcoholic fatty liver disease, is a broad umbrella that also includes simple steatosis, which just means you have more fat in your liver than you should, but nothing bad is happening to it yet. Okay, so anyway, if you go back to the 40s and 50s in that era, you know, even before they acknowledged this in humans, they Already knew that you could make, you could give an animal fatty liver disease with sugar. Even before that, way before that, they knew you could give an animal fatty liver disease with fat. So, and so actually, like very early on, the first thing that they knew is that if you fed lab animals fat, the more fat that you gave them, the more they would develop fatty liver disease. But the less, but the more protein you gave them, then the less fatty liver disease that you would get. And in fact, you could feed them as much fat as you wanted as long as you gave them enough protein to match it. And so it was early on known that there was some interaction between fat and protein. Later they showed that no matter whether you gave an animal fatty liver disease with sugar, alcohol, or fat, as long as you gave them enough protein, they would not get fatty liver disease. So they said, hmm, what is it about this protein? And they said, well, maybe it's the sulfur amino acids. And so then they showed that whether you give the animal fatty liver disease with sugar, alcohol, or fat, you can just give them the sulfur amino acids, which are methionine and cysteine, two of the, two of the 20 amino acids that make up proteins, and they won't get fatty liver disease. And they said, then they said, hmm, what, what might these be doing? And so their hypothesis was phosphatidylcholine, which is a form of choline that is a phospholipid that makes up cellular membranes, is known to be needed to export triglycerides from the liver. And so they said, maybe what's happening is the sulfur amino acids are helping the synthesis of phosphatidylcholine because we know that they do that. And so they just gave choline, and they found that choline abolished fatty liver, whether it was induced by sugar, alcohol, or fat. So what these are, you know, collectively what these experiments are showing is that sugar, alcohol, and fat can all cause fatty liver disease, but as long as you get enough protein, sulfur amino acids, or choline, you don't get fatty liver disease. And that's because protein supplies sulfur amino acids. Sulfur amino acids help you synthesize choline. Choline you can synthesize using sulfur amino acids, or you can just eat it. And as long as you get enough choline in the liver, you increase the fat out part of the equation that it doesn't matter what, how much fat you put in. So you could be fat. You could have high visceral abdominal fat. You could eat a lot of fat. You could eat a lot of sugar. You could eat a lot. Of, you drink a lot of alcohol. As long as you're exporting that fat from the liver, you don't get fatty liver. And so... What choline is doing, like anything that helps you make choline, being protein or sulfur amino acids, is increasing the fat out portion of that equation.
2: Okay, gotcha. Is that choline production demand-driven or supply-driven? Like if I eat a ton of protein, will I just create excess amounts of choline? Or does it only create enough choline that it needs for that process? Or does it even matter? I eat it so much protein, so I'm I'm very fascinated by this.
0: It's gonna be—I don't know if I want to say it's demand-driven because you can't really make it happen without the supply. But it's so the synthesis of phosphatidylcholine is actually like relatively constant as long as you eat enough to make it happen. And so I guess the answer to your question is, you know, as long as the supply is there, it's demand-driven, and you can't really overproduce it to stock up on it.
2: Have they done studies giving high dose choline to like rodents or whoever they're studying in in a very like lipogenic for fatty liver diet situation and absolved
1: it?
0: Yeah, that's what those, that's, yeah, that's exactly what they did in those early experiments. They created fatty liver disease through every means that they knew how. And they showed that as long as they provided enough protein. Sulfur amino acids or choline, then whatever they would do that would create that fatty liver disease wouldn't.
2: Yeah. So, and that's what you're saying when I was listening to your interview that the rodents that you guys used, you fed them casein or you did not feed them casein?
0: No, we, so I fed rats 60% fructose diets and I expected it to cause fatty liver disease and didn't. And ret, in retrospect, I believe that was probably because we used biotin supplemented egg white as our protein rather than casein, which is what is normally used. And the reason that we did that was because our department head was very convinced that casein is inflammatory to rats, and he was just broadly against feeding rats casein at all. And so we just routinely never used casein in diets. And he also thought that casein caused copper deficiency, and so for those reasons, we just never used casein in the diets, and all the studies showing fructose causes fatty livers, liver uses casein in the diets, and the egg white protein is way higher in sulfur amino acids than the casein is. In fact, casein is so low in sulfur amino acids that it's usually supplemented with methionine in, in normal lab rat diets, but even the methionine supplemented casein is way lower in sulfur amino acids than straight up egg white.
2: That is fascinating. While we're existing in the world of the different fats and the saturated fats and the chain links, I've read a lot of what you've written about polyunsaturated fats, and there is so much debate out there surrounding PUFAs. First of all, you write about how the common... I think most people, when they think EFA deficiency, they think omega-3s. But correct me if I'm wrong, is it actually omega-6 deficiency that is more common or more likely to be an issue.
0: You mean an essential fatty acid deficiency? Yes. So essential fatty acid deficiency is classically defined as a deficiency of omega-6 fatty acids.
2: Most people think, I think, omega-3s. Maybe that's just like a misconception out there.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, most people don't know anything about the history of it. And uh, certainly attention is much more on omega-3s. Since the '90s, due to the interest in anti-inflammatory effects of omega threes,
2: and how do you feel about? I feel like people are all on different sides about this. How do you feel about supplementing with things like fish oil, for example, or you know, more purified omega
0: threes? I think it would be better to eat fish, but I'm not totally against using low doses of it in the area of hundreds of milligrams per day of EPA and DHA if one doesn't eat fish.
2: Okay, gotcha. Question, you talk about how DHA versus EPA and their role in addressing or resolving or preventing inflammation. And what is their role there? And why is it that, so is it EPA that only can resolve inflammation if it's with aspirin?
0: Yeah, so... This also gets to the heart of some of the misunderstanding around omega-6s being inflammatory. So if you, go, if you peel back the last 20 years of research, basically, like if you go back to the 90s and probably the 2000s as well, basically everyone thought that inflammation was an active thing and that inflammation went away as a passive phenomenon, like if you are inflamed because you're sick, the inflammation goes away later because you're not sick anymore. If you're inflamed because you got injured, like the inflammation just went away after the, you know, after you'd healed enough from it. If you, you know, that that was the idea that it's an active process to create inflammation, and inflammation just fizzles out. So as long as you remove the cause of the inflammation, the inflammation will go away. Or if you obstruct the creation of the inflammation, then you will stop it from ever happening in the first place. And this is the basis of using anti inflammatory drugs, especially the most popular drugs in the world, the NSAIDs or non steroidal anti inflammatory drugs, just the common anti inflammatories you get at the drugstore. And I, I would kind of, you know, I, I kind of, acetaminophen is the one that's not an NSAID, although it, it it basically does the same thing that that the end says. Do I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So first of all, like this idea, and so you know, by you could infer from that that if anyone has inflammation, the problem is the cause of it. In other words, like if someone ha- just has like chronic inflammation, it must be cut because of the chronic presence of a cause of inflammation, right? And so. This whole like this whole framework is wrong. And it's it's still the dominant framework in everywhere. <laughs> you know, it's still the completely dominant framework in pharmaceuticals. It's still the completely dominant framework in nutrition. It's like everyone still believes this. You only believe otherwise if you delve into the literature on this topic. And what that literature shows over the last like decade or two is that the resolution of inflammation is not at all a passive process. It's a highly active process. And if you can remove the cause of inflammation, but if you don't have the active process of resolving it, it will stay there forever. And so the fact that someone has chronic inflammation does not at all tell you that they necessarily have an enduring cause of the inflammation. It is entirely possible that they the cause is long gone, and they just aren't resolving it. So, like literally everything that you could infer from the former framework turns out to be wrong in the present framework. And it, actually, it's it's worse than that because all of the anti-inflammatory drugs are based on either preventing the initiation of inflammation or somehow blocking its results. And the ones that that people take the most are the NSAIDs, and they are, this is where I was, what I was getting at before, like this is basically true of of acetaminophen, which is not one. All these common anti-inflammatory over-the-counter drugs are, and actually this is also true of a a lot of like nutritional anti-inflammatories as well, are reducing the expression Or blocking the activity of the cyclooxygenase or COX enzyme, which converts the omega-6 fatty acid, arachidonic acid, into prostaglandins, such as prostaglandin E2, which initiates inflammation. So this core, complete misunderstanding gets at the heart of Omega threes and omega sixes, and it gets at the heart of NSAIDs, and it gets at the you know it gets at the heart of what's the real cause of chronic low-grade inflammation. The problem is not only that inflammation is an active process that you need to nourish, but inflammation—I don't know if I said that right. Inflammation resolution is is an active process you need to nourish. The real problem with pharmaceutically modifying this is that. Prostaglandin E2 made, and this is not just with pharmaceuticals, this is also this is also a problem for trying to reduce omega-6s and increase omega-3s to resolve to address this as well. The problem is that prostaglandin E2, which is made from the omega-6 fatty acid, arachidonic acid, not only is the central initiator of inflammation, it is also the central initiator of the inflammation of resolution, of the resolution of inflammation. And so, you know, you want to believe if you're trying to biohack this, right? <laughs> you want to believe that there's like one chemical that initiates inflammation and a different one that initiates the resolution of inflammation, right? Like because then you can increase one and decrease the other and you get you change it, <laughs> right? And so nature has delivered you this this completely defies your 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 biohacking desires to create a biohacking nightmare which is that you have no control biochemically over this because it's literally the same chemical starting the inflammation and ending it.
1: How does it decide what to do?
0: This is the thing. The chemical doesn't decide, right? The, the, this Actually, this is very fascinating. We believe, like the, like the drug industry, right, is largely driven by biochemistry. And like as a culture because we are our culture is so dependent on on pharmaceutical industry as a culture we like sort of prize biochemistry above other sciences and and so by biochemistry i mean like this enzyme controls that and this you know this thing controls that enzyme and if you like block that enzyme or you block that receptor you'll make this reaction happen or not happen and the case of resolution of inflammation is so fascinating because what it tells us is that physiology dominates. I think physiology is the right word to use here. Well, I'm going to use it this way. Maybe someone can critique me on it. That physiology dominates over biochemistry, and what I mean by that is the interaction between different cells and different tissues in the body is the thing that creates the resolution of inflammation rather than any chemical that is created by any enzyme or acts on any receptor. And so the biochemistry of an enzyme makes a chemical that acts on a receptor is completely subjugated to the balance between different cell types in different tissues and how they're distributed in the body. So what happens is, like, let's say you have a wound Uh, you know, you get a cut or something, there are many immune cells that will now migrate to that wound to start healing it. And among those cell types are are neutrophils. And one of the things, and this is like a puzzle that people are trying to work out and are nowhere near actually solving the puzzle yet. (laughs) Like, If they solve exactly what it is that determines the resolution of inflammation, that will probably be like the biggest advance in in inflammatory disease you know in decades solving this puzzle is what will shift the paradigm you know fully shift the paradigm like when they can make this science usable in how inflammation is treated clinically like once that puzzle is solved it'll it'll basically be like a new a new era of you know sort of like replace the last you know whatever i don't know when they discovered the cox enzymes but this has to be like many decades ago you know this is like the new like a new century of of inflammation treatment but like what the puzzle is looking like is the burden of neutrophils is one of the key signals that the inflammation has to start resolving and so it's it's sort of like there are ways of sensing that the work done at the wound is nearing its completion and now you can start the next stage. And so a wound healing is an an exact analogy to with low grade chronic inflammation where the inflammation is not supposed to be happening like it's sort of like well how do we replace that signal because we're not at, we don't actually have a clear work objective like we're not supposed to be inflamed right now but if you look at like what's happening at a more granular level It's actually quite fascinating because there are some cells that make certain enzymes in a pathway, and other cells that make other enzymes in the pathway, and those cells have to be next to each other in order to make certain chemicals get produced. And so it's like prostaglandin E2 made from the omega-6 fatty acid arachidonic acid using the COX enzyme that you inhibit with all your anti-inflammatory drugs— Prostaglandin E two will induce an inflammatory or a resolutionary, the resolution of inflammation state, depending on the other cells that are around and whether they're next to each other or not. Like it, it's looking like the resolution of inflammation is actually about the cycle of cells that need to migrate to the wound at different stages in order to engage in the first like don't bleed to death phase, and then the fix this mess phase, and then clean it up phase. And so, th- and then there's another, you know, there, there are analogous processes of like a viral infection. Like first you're pr- trying to make it not multiply, and then you're, you know, then you're trying to destroy it, and then you're trying to clean up the mess. And so, but from this, however, there are, and this gets back to your question, I I took the long way here, but you know, so the first lesson there is that omega-6s aren't intrinsically inflammatory and that, you know, if you could avoid it, you NSAIDs don't make sense. Like they don't, <laughs> the paradigm has now like left NSAIDs behind to where they were based on the old paradigm and they don't really do what they're supposed to do in the new one, but it's c- because NSAIDs are, are preventing you from making prostaglandin E2, which, which yes, it reduces inflammation. It, yes, it it makes inflammation, but it also ends inflammation. And so the the animal experiments that really suggest that's a bad idea, what they did was in multiple different models, they showed that if you create an inflammatory scenario for an animal, you get up to a peak inflammation, and then it goes back to baseline. If you give them NSAIDs, they don't hit the high peak inflammation. They hit a lower peak of peak inflammation, but they also don't resolve it, right? So they... They, their peak inflammation is less, but they never go back to normal. And so what that tells you is that blocking the enzyme that creates the inflammation causes chronic low-grade inflammation. And so what that really tells you is that the epidemic of chronic low-grade inflammation, the cause of that, appears to be the old wrong paradigm that formed the last half century of how people have been dealing with acute inflammation right like if your paradigm is and and uh, you know this is changing in other ways like under the old paradigm people were always trying to block you know to treat any painful thing that came up and so like and this is now very controversial in sports but like people would like take NSAIDs while they were recovering from exercise because there's post exercise inflammation and that, and now that's very controversial because it looks like post exercise inflammation is good for you <laughs> it's good for your recovery the old paradigm of inflammation which is still dominant like looks to me like it that it created the epidemic of chronic low grade inflammation by teaching us that we could control this one chemical by blocking this one enzyme to stop us from reaching the peak inflammation just it took us 50 more years to find out that that also prevents us from ever going back to no inflammation.
2: Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits, as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. epic presence for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. So in that situation where, so we have this injury or something that would, quote, require inflammation, where inflammation would play a role. So that's where the prostaglandins would come in and either create and or resolve the inflammation if you just live through that and you're taking the pain pills the whole time and you don't let the inflammation ever happen does the event not resolve itself like on its own i know you said that like prostaglandins are needed to resolve the inflammation but does the event itself not heal and then we don't even need to worry about prostaglandins creating or not or resolving inflammation
0: do you mean like if you get A wound, will you not heal the wound if you take NSAIDs? Is that what you mean?
2: So if you stop prostaglandins from happening, you're blocking that COX-2 enzyme with your NSAIDs. You're saying that they're needed to ultimately resolve inflammation, but they're addressing whatever's happening. That's where they would be creating or resolving inflammation. But do those things not go away on their own? Like, can you not just wait it out? Why would you be in a perpetual state
0: instead of taking the NSAIDs or taking the NSAIDs? What are you asking? Taking the NSAIDs. Well, I think I mean I think I think the data would suggest that a lot of people who just take the NSAIDs wind up with pretty serious gut problems. Yeah, I mean your headache might go away, but that doesn't mean that you don't wind up with autoimmune arthritis at some point. You know?
2: Yeah. I guess so. What I'm trying to clarify is the prostaglandin's role in creating inflammation or resolving inflammation but if they're just never there to begin with
0: look so these these animal experiments didn't last forever and so it's it's possible that there's some you know some it's possible that rather than staying forever it stays for like you know 50% of your life or something i don't know what it, what that would you know, if they if they let the animals live out until they died of natural causes, then you, it, maybe it does return to baseline. But what they show is that if you if you like immunize an animal against its own collagen, such that it'll develop autoimmune arthritis, if they get NSAIDs, they don't get as much swelling in their joints, but the swelling also never goes away.
2: Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking of it in two different situations, like a wound situation, but it would be different if it was like an
0: ongoing. Well, even, I mean, even with a wound, like there's different levels of healing of a wound. And so I don't know.
2: Like, will the healing never happen without the inflammation?
0: Some healing will happen because you're not going to bleed to death. But so, first of all, you know, the resolution stage of healing a wound is not aimed at accomplishing the healing, it's aimed at clearing the inflammatory cells out of the tissues. And that's important because inflammatory cells, I mean, they're inflammatory and they but they also can be damaging. I mean you like you they migrate to the wound to fix it, but they like if if they but like if you just like dump neutrophils on healthy tissue, it's gonna damage it. You know? They make like a lot of reactive oxygen species and like they're not supposed to be hanging out all the time in your tissue. And so the like the real question isn't whether the wound heals. It's like, you know, do you have chronic swelling or, or like beneath the wound chronic damage to the tissues from a burden of of inflammatory cells that never fully goes away. But but I and I don't know if there's any studies on NSAIDs and wound healing. But I would also note that like wound healing isn't all the same i mean you can heal a wound with healthy tissue you can heal a wound with scar tissue and and so there's there are there are multiple ways to heal a wound and and scar tissue is the one you don't want i'm not saying that blocking prostaglandins will cause scar tissue i have no idea if that's been studied but i'm just i'm just making the point that like healing any wound is inevitable unless you die or get you know a severe infection but you can heal a wound in a far from ideal way, and that's how you wind up with scar tissue. And I and I have no I, I have no idea how onsets might impact that, but I, but I would be interested to see. But anyway, with the omega threes, you know, one one possible answer to chronic low grade inflammation is that your body doesn't have the tools to fix it, to resolve it. And so it's what's interesting is that although omega threes play no particular role in initiating inflammation. They play a very central role in responding to prostaglandin E2, which is made from the omega-6 arachidonic acid, by also playing a role in resolution. So you can imagine that if you do have enough omega-6 to go through that cycle, but you don't have enough omega-3, then your resolution, it's not that it won't happen or can't happen, or has nothing promoting it. It's just that you're missing a core piece of the of the army of of biochemicals that will make it happen. You're missing all the omega three derived pro resolution compounds, and and so as it turns out, DHA is the main participant there. And EPA early evidence was suggesting that EPA could only participate in the presence of aspirin. Although there's now evidence that certain bacteria can also make EPA act pro-resolution. You know, that might only happen under certain circumstances. For example, like it might only happen in the gut where those bacteria are present, or in the case of a systemic infection when they would be present. So I'm I'm still conservative about using EPA for that purpose. But EPA versus DHA, there's another problem with EPA, which is that EPA is a cox inhibitor. <laughs> And so if you're using like high dose fish oil, that's like taking an NSAID. And so DHA doesn't block the COX enzyme and it does participate in resolution. So I think that, you know, the natural cycle like the dominant normal physiology involves relying on omega-6 fatty acids to without anything obstructing their way, make prostaglandins and then when it's time initiate resolution and DHA will become intimately involved in that. I'm not opposed to necessarily like using EPA and aspirin in that case, but I think you're you're kind of getting into a more pharmacological approach when you do that.
2: So does aspirin fall under, when we've been saying NSAIDs?
0: Yeah, so aspirin is interesting because it is an NSAID. And yet it does something different to the COX enzyme versus all the other NSAIDs. Most NSAIDs just block the COX enzyme, and aspirin—and this is not true of food salicylates, this is only true of aspirin—aspirin acetylates the COX enzyme, which does, yes, reduce its production of prostaglandin E2, but it shifts the enzyme into making the pro-resolution compounds— and so aspirin is in kind of a gray area where it does both, <laughs> and so and so it it's the one over the counter anti-inflammatory that you could argue is pro resolution because even though it blocks the usual pro resolution compound prostaglandin E2, it itself substitutes for prostaglandin E2 in being pro resolution. However, however, I would note that in the gut, prostaglandin E2 does not, it's not just a pro resolution compound. It is essential to the normal state of producing tolerance to foods. And so I'm I'm not comfortable with the lack of data on whether aspirin could contribute to food allergies. Like I do trust aspirin over all the other NSAIDs. And way over acetaminophen, you know, providing someone doesn't have an adverse reaction to aspirin, which would usually just include like bleeding in response to it. But some people have aspirin induced asthma and stuff like that. For people who tolerate aspirin, I do think aspirin, in my view, is the anti inflammatory of choice because of its pro resolution capacity. However, uh, I'm not I'm not too happy with the idea of blocking prostaglandin E2 in general, especially over like especially chronically all the time, because I, I do worry that that would contribute to food intolerances.
2: There are two compounds that I always want to ask the guests about, and I'm dying to know their opinion on. One is aspirin, because I'm just haunted by the cost-benefit of it. And the second one, and maybe this could be our, our last thing, because I want to be very respectful of your time. I want it to be a rapid-fire question, but... NR versus NMN what's your current thoughts on that
0: So I think that NMN is likely digested to NR if it reaches the intestines and I don't know much about like the sublingual transport but if there's but if there's an NMN transporter it's probably mostly relevant before it gets into the stomach due to and especially the intestine due to the digestive process so my current belief is that NMN and NR are probably largely bioequivalent. And I think that they're, you know, they're likely to have significant, but I think that you're sort of getting just by not being nice and deficient, you're getting most of the benefit. But if you're trying to increase NAD levels, I think you have a slightly better effect that you'll get from NR or NMN overtaking nicotinamide, but I think the two of them are largely going to be equivalent to each other.
2: Even though the NMN would require a conversion to NR.
0: But that's not like a well, there's two things. So one first of all, that's not an, an energy intensive conversion. And second of all, the enzymes that do that are non-specific phosphatases that are expressed at extremely high levels in the intestines. It's probably the case that you don't have much of a choice but to digest it into NR in the intestines. And you'll, you'll, probably, you'll probably digest a portion of it to free niacin as well. But the conversion of the NMN to the NR should probably be extremely high, if not complete, in the small intestine under most circumstances.
2: There's this idea that NMN is shelf stable or it doesn't require refrigeration, but NR does. Is it more fragile? Do you know?
0: NMN doesn't require shelf. I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure.
2: Okay. Two last rapid fire questions. Have you done an NAD IV? No. I was on the fence. I haven't either, but I just, it's a lot of money to spend for something that apparently can be very unpleasant <laughs> to experience.
0: I'm more concerned about the unpleasantness. I don't, I don't know what the cost is, but I, I stop at the unpleasantness.
2: Unpleasantness. Yeah. And do you know if there's an issue with NR wasting methyl group? Like uh, having a taxing effect because of requiring.
0: Oh yeah, all night all niacin will will tax methyl groups to some extent. Okay, things to consider.
2: Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I could ask you questions for ever. So I will not, but, um, I really, really appreciate all of your work for listeners. You have so many incredible resources on your website. What links would you like to put out there for people to best follow your work, get your guides, support you, all of those things.
0: com slash uncensored, or follow me on my new sub stack at com. Those links go to the same place. That's that's my my newsletter. Everything else can be found from there.
2: Awesome. Well, I will say I had not subscribed for Substack, but I did recently to follow your Substack. That's what made me turn over. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So, what is something that you're grateful for?
0: I'm 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 i in, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm incredibly grateful that I have an audience of people that care enough about me to support me while I do what it, it seems is my greatest gift to the world, which is use my analytical brain to, to break down science in, in ways that people can use for their health. And thats that's granted me an enormous amount of personal freedom and as well as fulfillment in feeling like I'm doing what I was put here to do.
2: Well, thank you so much. I cannot say enough how grateful I am for your work and all that you're doing. And you're just helping so many people. This is amazing. I will continue to follow all of your content and hopefully we can talk again in the future. But thank you so much.
0: Awesome, thank you so much, Melanie. This was great.
2: Thanks, Chris,
1: bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information,